Today I want to, in a way, pick up on the things that I shared last week, where we talked about the, the, the wonder of our being glory bearers, created in the image of God, to bear his light out into the world. And in, in many ways that's the, the part one of God's salvific work in our lives. And today I want to focus a little more on, in, in many ways, part two of that same salvation, and reflect upon what I think is the, the key or secret to life transformation in terms of our spiritual lives in God. These words from our reading. But now that you have been set free from sin, that's part one. God has done this. He's paid the price. He's imputed his righteousness, his goodness upon us. And Paul goes on, now we have become slaves of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. Remember our meaning of eternal life a couple of weeks ago in John's Gospel, where Jesus says, this is eternal life, that you would know God, the Father, and the one whom he sent, Jesus. And how this invitation to worship is by definition also an invitation to be about the mission of God, the purposes of God. If we love him, then we have concern for the things that are upon God's heart. And if part one is to bring us into relationship, to set us free to worship, then part two leads us deeper also into the work that God has for us. I don't know how many of you are familiar with or practice contemplation. It's not something prevalent in our Western form of Christianity. It's getting beyond our minds. It's, it's, it's that ability to, to, to rest in this transcendent reality that we have been made one with he who is eternal, the union. And it's as if our spirit is communicating with God's spirit. I was reading recently about a lady, Barbara Holmes, speaking of of what something she called crisis contemplation. And she was doing so in the context of reflecting on the experience of African slaves. She said that it rose out of necessity. As they were transported away from their homeland, across the ocean, as this human cargo, contemplation became the soul's strategy for survival. Having been ripped from their homeland, from their families, being held captive in the bowels of the ship. And you can imagine, well, I don't know if we can, but just the stench of human waste and the worry and fear that would abound. These men would have been strangers to each other from different tribes, perhaps different tongues and languages. And here they are together without any semblance of control in life. And it forced them to turn to a realm beyond themselves, the spirit realm, shaped perhaps uh, initially for many by their African religion, but nevertheless seeking after relief and guidance, and out of that forging a new sense of identity. For these captured Africans, sadly there was no safety, there was no assurance of a future necessarily. And all that they had was this common cause and this development of this internal fortitude and spirituality. 
the only sound often that would carry the Africans over these bitter waters was the moans. And the moans flowed through each racked body and drew each soul towards the centre of contemplation. The moans became the sound of unspeakable fears, the precursor perhaps to joy yet unknown. It caused me to think of the spirit hovering over the face of the waters, the chaos at the beginning of creation we read in Genesis 1, over the deep, of the moaning or groaning that Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 8, as we await in many ways part three of this salvation, the redemption of our bodies. John Newton would be familiar to some of you. He was a slave ship captain at 23, and he's on a journey back um, towards Ireland, and he's off the coast of Ireland and hits this terrible storm, so much so as he puts him in fear of his life himself, in which he too turns to prayer. This was 1748. And he would write that his true conversion, though he gave his life to God, though he promised him everything, he turned to Christ in many ways. And for four weeks there, it took them to eventually reach the shore. He would say his true conversion came much later. I cannot consider myself to have been a believer in the full sense of the world until a considerable time afterwards, he writes. Actually, 16 years later, he was ordained as a priest in the church. And eight years after that, he wrote what is a most familiar hymn, the words of Amazing Grace. In 1780, by now he's 55 years old and he becomes the rector of a church in London. And he actually worked with William Wilberforce towards the abolition of slavery. And here's a wonderful thing of how contemplation, our, our contemplation of the divine, of this beyond the natural, this connection with God, always leads to action, or at least it should. And just like, in a way, we think of our own salvation and in terms of justification, being made right with God, sins washed away, freedom given, but then there is sanctification. Then there's the process of making ourselves holy, becoming like God himself. In our reading, God, Paul himself uses this language of slavery. He speaks in terms of our slavery to sin. In other words, there was a power over us over which we had no control. But now we have been led to this obedience of the heart leading to righteousness. Whereas once we were slaves to sin, now he says, you are slaves of God. That leads to holiness and eternal life. Jesus expresses this life in his life upon the earth. There's a, a wonderful incident where he and his disciples were traveling through Samaria. This, um, this region of the land uh, in which people who lived there, were really hated by the Jews. They were seen to have compromised their faith in the history, and so there wasn't the pure faith. And so not only is it rather shocking that they're there and he's engaging with people, but he's actually speaking to a woman of Samaria. And during this time, uh, the disciples have actually gone off into town to get some lunch, some food. And they come back and they find him speaking to this woman. 
and uh, they talk about the food. And Jesus says this. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. My food, his very food and nourishment was to do God's will and to finish the work for which he had been sent. See, Jesus was utterly submitted to the Father's will, surrendered. Here he is, the Godhead, the Son of God, utterly submitted to the Father. You never read the other way around of the Father being submitted to the Son. In John 14, he'll go on to say, I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. This is not just admirable, though it is that, of course. But it's also our example. Remember, Jesus came not just to make a way to God, but to show us the way of life in God. As the Father sent me, we read in the concluding chapters of John's Gospel, I am sending you. My life is an example to you. My work is the work to which you are called also. Now, this could cause us to feel a little anxious, as if God is calling us to something way beyond what we are capable of. But I don't want you to be anxious about that. In fact, I don't think the Lord wants us to live with anxiety. And the good news is Jesus is praying for us. Part of his ministry today is to pray for the saints. He intercedes before the Father. And he pours out the Holy Spirit upon us. He believes in us. And he's pouring himself out through his spirit, into our very lives. God is the one who initiates. It is the love of God that compelled him to come and to reveal himself in the way he did through Jesus of Nazareth and to suffer and die in our place. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, Paul writes. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God takes the initiative and God reveals himself. But he goes beyond that. He even empowers our own wills that we would walk in obedience to that which he wills. He gives us a new heart and a new desire. That's why Paul could speak of this obedience of the heart leading us to righteousness, to holiness, and to eternal life. So we're given not only new life, new identity, but also new power and new desires to live by. I think that's good news. And so this empowering of our wills is so that we would yield our will to him, not to live for ourselves. In fact, in Galatians, Paul speaks about, you know, don't use this freedom that you've been given to indulge the sinful nature. That's what you've been saved from. That's what you had no choice over, but now you have a choice. So rather, serve one another in love. This is his ultimate new commandment. This is the way. And to help us grow in that, there are these twin things that God does for us. He reveals himself and his purpose, and he invites us then to respond by grace to that which he has called us. Later, Paul will go on to say that in many ways, this is not just an optional extra for some who are keen, but he says, actually, there's an obligation upon us. Therefore, we have an obligation, he writes in chapter 8. If by the Spirit, there's the grace of God at work, we put to death the misdeeds of the flesh, we shall live. 
This is, these are words to those in whom there's no condemnation, in whom the spirit of sonship is affirming our identity and yet inviting us to our responsibility to lay aside the old way, the old man, as we reflected last time, and to put on the new, not just identity, but new way of life, to become like Jesus, submitted to the Father's will. And in this is life. Ironically, slavery to God brings us life, whereas slavery to sin only brought death. So these three keys I'm going to mention very briefly. First and foremost, we have to receive what God reveals. Christianity is a, is a religion and a faith of response to the revelation of God. And the ongoing revelation comes as we choose to walk in the light we have been given. We're told actually to flee from darkness because there's a part of us that loves it. Jesus speaks of that. Men love the darkness. He warns us too in John's Gospel. He says, walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. This is from John 12. And left to our own devices, darkness will consume us. But we are to come to Christ, who is our light. We are to seek light through the Word of God. This is a second means by which God has made light available, has revealed his will and his ways to us through the scriptures as he moved upon men as they wrote these words for us. And then thirdly, we are to yield and submit to the light and life in one another. So three sources of light that we are to pursue, the light of Christ, who is the light of the world, the light of the scriptures, which is a lamp unto our feet and a lamp unto our path, and the light in one another through fellowship and through submitted and loving relationship, accountable relationship, yielded wills. I think this means intimacy with each other. So we receive what God reveals through those means. Secondly, we have to yield to what God reveals. No good having revelation without yielding. It doesn't do anything. One of the challenges, again, we read in John's Gospel, Jesus to the religious leaders, he says, you diligently search the scriptures because by them you think that you have eternal life. These very scriptures, they're our source of light to us. However, he says, you refuse to come to me to have life. We cannot take one in isolation of another. So we are to yield which, to that which God reveals. Paul puts it like this, offer every part of yourself to give, to surrender our body, our soul and our spirit to the obedience of love. We are slaves to righteousness. This is a good slavery. Elsewhere, Paul speaks of himself as being a bond slave of Christ. To be enslaved to Christ means to obey his teaching, the very commandment he gave to his disciples to pass on to those who would come after them. Go into all the world, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Not in a slavish, dictatorial kind of way, but through the renewed heart and the new will and the working of the Spirit in us, nevertheless, to lead us to obedience to the teaching of Christ. 
This is the grace of God. <laughs> this is the love of the Father which abounds through the Spirit into our hearts and out from our hearts through our wills and lives as an expression of the goodness of God to the world. Now the third aspect, and actually probably the most important part of this that can sometimes be missed, is that we must yield before we receive. It's a conscious choice to come to Christ, is to deny self. He says, if you're not willing to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, you can have no part with me. To say we belong to Christ and to still be preoccupied with self is a contradiction in itself and it cannot bring life to us. We, you see, we are not transformed through knowledge and understanding alone. We're not transformed through activities and business, whether they're in the church or outside. It's not events. It's not even great preaching and teaching alone that transform us. But we are transformed through first hearing, but also submitting with humility, with brokenness, with oneness, with abiding to the revelation that God brings. It is a yielded spirit in our lives that brings the weight of the glory that we spoke of last time. It's why, again for John, the culmination of Jesus' yielding and submission to the Father, the place of greatest glory was the place of greatest suffering, the cross. A surrendered life, literally, physically, and yet the place of greatest glory. The place of greatest significance in terms of the values of the kingdom of God. In the book of Proverbs, the writer says, The Lord takes the upright into his confidence. Another translation would say, The Lord is intimate with the upright. Isn't that a beautiful, a beautiful thing? That God calls us into intimacy and relationship with him. I remember when I was... Actually, it's a fairly young Christian exploring ordained ministry. The, uh, the man who, in many ways, led me to Christ and discipled me, really sensed a call of God upon my life in this manner. And he encouraged me to explore that. And Carol and I did. And we spent several months meeting with people, going on a, a retreat weekend, um, exploring this call. I was hungry for the things of God. But I can't say I was thoroughly submitted yet. And... Uh, it was some time later, a lot had happened in our lives. We'd had another child, we'd moved house uh, to a different part of the country, uh, we'd therefore moved churches, and yet the call continued. God had not changed, but I was being changed. And it was later, as uh, again, uh, this invitation through people, through the Spirit's work in me, again invited me to, to contemplate this direction I felt God was leading me, uh, that I was in a place that was different. I was in a place that I actually felt I couldn't resist. And uh, people sometimes would ask me, because I, I left a, a fairly senior job, well-paid, with the trappings that go with that to some extent, um, to go to school, to, uh, to a very different future. Um, and they would ask me what I felt about that. And uh, particularly the financial side, you know, people ask. But you see, that wasn't my focus. That wasn't what excited me. What excited me was God and uh, the ministry and the opportunity to serve him in a way by his grace. What about you? Have you been aware of times when God has given specific direction? 
Perhaps he's revealed through a warning. Maybe he's confronted something in your life concerning uh, some aspect, some relationship, some activity. Maybe God has revealed to affirm you about your identity and uh, his love for you, to bring reassurance and to invite you to continue in this journey towards obedience and being slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. You know, a contemporary of John Newton, um, as we spoke of earlier, um, was John Wesley. I mentioned him about three or four weeks ago when we reflected on his experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit when he wrote in his diaries of his heart being strangely warmed. Well, he was very much a contemporary of John Newton in the 18th century. And uh, he came to this point where he realized, I did trust in Christ alone for my salvation. And with that came a further yielding and surrender and actually anointing on his ministry. Contemplation led to significant action that sustained a revival in the United Kingdom that stretched up and down the country. Wesley literally rode thousands of miles on his horse, preached thousands of sermons to crowds large and small in homes, in churches, outside churches, in graveyards, in fields. It brought a revival that saved a nation. But Wesley had a method. Wesley was not just interested in converts. He wanted disciples. And one of the reasons it's called Methodism is out of that reality of the method that Wesley used. And with this emphasis upon a desire for the, the second part of salvation being worked out. Wesley introduced something which he called classes. These, this was his version of small groups. He was ministering in the context of a culture that had this class division from um, you know, lower class, working class, the poor, middle class, higher class, much more extreme than it is today. And very often he was ministering to the working masses of the nation. And yet in these classes, what they experienced was an intimate relational connection of community where leaders would be vulnerable. They would be mixed in terms of the sexes, uh, ages, social classes to help break down some of these previous divisions of the 18th century. There were places of support, of encouragement, of spiritual maturing through fellowship and friendship. Similar to the things that I've been talking about, that I believe God is calling us to grow in as an expression of our common life here at Jericho Road. But Wesley went beyond that. He also had um, something that he called bands. And these were smaller, more intimate settings. These were for people who were soundly converted to Christ, as he put it. And very often they were the size three to five people. Remember Jesus, who had his three people in James, Peter and John, plus himself, four. He also had, by the way, 12, his 12 in terms of the discipling group. Um, but these bands reflected Wesley's realism about the call to express the life of the new creation and the challenge that that brought to many. He would say this, the war is not over. Believers had still to wrestle with flesh and blood as well as principalities and powers. The flesh and blood was ourselves. 
Temptations were there on every side. And so in these bands, which became very tight, same sex, probably same age and connection, but places where they confessed their sins, their struggles, and their secrets. They experienced a profound sense of grace and acceptance from one another. There was prayer to persevere in the battle. There was revelation as the word was spoken and God brought his revelation. There was an abundance of pretense and superficiality, but authentic fellowship. And in that place, very often they experienced greater victory and spiritual transformation. In fact, what fueled the revival and fueled the establishment of a, of a Methodist movement was the leadership that came through these bands as people took seriously the call of Christ and pressed through into a place of, matura- of maturity and of ministry, of contemplation and of action. Interestingly, each year within the Methodist church, the whole church is invited to pray a prayer, a covenant prayer, in a covenant service they have at the beginning of the year. It goes like this. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by thee or laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things and let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine and I am thine. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. I feel quite stirred as I read that and reflect on that for my own life and would love for you to consider the same. I've been struck this week how in the UK, as they continue to try and respond to this virus and this, the gradual opening up, I find myself thinking of how the world is doing what the church is called to do. Uh, they've started these uh, support bubbles, they call them, where now particularly a person living alone can connect with um, a family in another home and uh, without the need for social distancing. Uh, because of a recognition that we, life is hard lived on our own. We're not meant to live alone. And so this is a place of encouragement, of comfort and strength. Salvation and our growth in Christ happens in community. The twos and threes and fours and fives, I believe, are the, the foundational, smallest building blocks of church. Jesus promises, there am I in the midst when two or three come together. And that's in the context of actually dealing with conflict and the need to be reconciled and come together and see salvation being worked out. I know that many of you are looking forward to our ability to gather together physically in the building, to worship, to celebrate, and to give expression to who we are as a, as a bigger community. I too share in that longing. Uh, I want us to be sensitive and um, caring about that. And there are there is a real sense in me that this time presents us with an opportunity to work towards that, not by just staying where we are, but using this call to give expression to our community in these smaller settings, the smaller twos and threes and fours, where there can be real accountability and ministry and prayer and encouragement, but also um, in smaller community groups of between eight and ten or so people. 
I know some are already considering meeting on a Sunday and uh, listening as a group to, to this uh, Zoom uh, worship session uh, and then having lunch together. A wonderful opportunity to uh, feel that we're part of the body, more connected, less isolated, um, and helping us actually grow into that identity and rhythms that I believe are going to be important as we move forward, as we engage in greater mission and evangelism, as we invite people onto the road with us and into this journey of growing in love for God and for one another. So pray about that. Consider that. Reach out to people. Talk with one another. Talk with me. Talk with others on the leadership. And let's see what God would reveal to which we can respond and become for the glory of God. Amen.